We are uh, continuing our series, series, Long Story Short, where we're going through the Bible in 13 weeks, and we're on, I think it's week eight, am I right? Week eight, Uh, and so the topic uh, this morning is called uh, The Return. On a rainy day in the 1750s, an Englishman named Jonas Hanway decided to do what no Englishman had done before. He walked down the streets in London on a rainy day with a portable roof over his head, what we would know as an umbrella. And umbrellas were common at that time, but only for women. Real men got wet. (laughs) So Jonas Hanway, for 30 years, was the most ridiculed man in all of England, but also the driest man. Uh, Umbrellas are very useful because on days like yesterday, they keep you from the elements, they keep you from getting wet. And can I suggest this morning that the will of God is like an umbrella. The will of God actually protects us from the elements. And if you are in Christ, we are under the umbrella of God's grace, under the umbrella of God's authority. It protects us from the elements. And by the way, this isn't my polka-dotted umbrella. I just want to clarify that. Uh, But if you get outside of God's umbrella, all hail can break loose. I thought that was pretty good. (laughs) If you cheat on your taxes, you're stepping out from under God's umbrella. If you compromise your integrity, you're stepping out from under God's umbrella. If you cheat on your wife, you're compromising your life and you are stepping out from under God's umbrella. If you drink a few too many drinks, these are like these types of things uh, are just ways that People can step outside of God's umbrella, his grace, his authority in our lives. It puts us in a very precarious position. And I want to talk about a little bit of the difference very quickly about penalty versus consequences. Because we know that there's actually a difference between these two. When you confess your sin, the sin is forgiven and forgotten. The penalty is gone. It's erased. That was paid for 2,000 years ago, and that's what we celebrated at Easter last weekend. But if you sin, there's still consequences to sin. Like I said, if you cheat on your taxes, there might be consequences to that. Is there forgiveness for that? Absolutely. But that doesn't mean that the consequences aren't there. So when we step out here, often there's consequences. And even when we're under God's grace, under God's authority, we still sometimes reap the consequences even though we are forgiven. This is just the law of sowing and reaping, and this is talked about often in Scripture. And we see this in Galatians 6, verse 7. Don't be misled. You cannot mock the justice of God. You will always harvest what you plant. This is just spiritual cause and effect. You see this everywhere. In Malachi 3, it, it says that if you're not tithing, we're actually stepping out from under the umbrella of God's blessing. And it applies to lots of different things. So as followers of Jesus, we want to make sure that we're right here under the authority, under the grace, under the protection of God's umbrella. There's a pastor in the States who said it this way. You've got to get under the things God put over you so you can get over the things that God put under you. Did you follow that? Say it one more time as you read it. You've got to get under the things that God put over you 
his grace, his forgiveness, his authority in your life so you can get over the things that God put under you so you can be victorious in your life. This morning we're talking about the return. And a couple of weeks ago before Easter, I'm just going to close this for a second. Before Easter we talked about uh, the, how the, the kingdom of Israel was split into two. And so you see the chart that we looked at, uh, you know, there was a, the Israel wanted a king. God didn't necessarily want a king. He wanted to have a theocracy, but, God, but the Israelites said, you know, we want to be like our neighboring nations. We want to be like everybody else. And, and so God gave them the desires of their heart. Even though it wasn't his plan A, he often allows us to pick plan Bs and then tries to work with us in our plan Bs even though it's not his ideal for our own lives. And so this is what happens in the story of the Israelites. They say we want to have a kingdom just like the other uh, nations and we want a king. And so they had King Saul, they had King David, they had King Solomon. And after King Solomon, there was a split in the kingdom and there was a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And so Israel was made up of the 12 tribes and then the northern kingdom... You can see the tribes listed there on your screen and the southern kingdom made up of Judah and Benjamin. But very quickly, in 721 BC, the northern kingdom was destroyed. They were exiled. They were taken captive by the Assyrians. And that is really the end of the story for those tribes in the northern kingdom. And so when your Bible continues to talk about Israel, it's actually only really talking about Judah, and Benjamin, the southern kingdom. The southern kingdom would be exiled by the Babylonians in 587 B.C. Everybody say 587. I just get you to do that because when I talk about all this history, I just try and make sure you're not falling asleep on me. Uh, So in 587 B.C., the return and the rebuilding of the, the temple would happen 70 years later. So they were taken captive by the Babylonians For 70 years, but they would return. They would eventually return, and that's what uh, this morning is about. And so we're going to look at 2 Chronicles 36. So even even though Chronicles is kind of in the middle of your Old Testament, uh, the end of Chronicles is the end of, kind of the end of the story. And so we're going to look at 2 Chronicles and then look at Ezra and Nehemiah, which used to be uh, one book, but we've separated them into two books. And again, because, just because it's in the, end of the, you're by, in the end of the middle of the Old Testament, I talked about this a couple of weeks ago, uh, doesn't necessarily mean that that's where it is chronologically. So it's the, we're kind of getting to the end of the Old Testament story. Next week we're going to look at the New Testament story. And this is what it reads. 2 Chronicles 36, starting in verse 15. The Lord, the God of their ancestors, repeatedly sent his prophets to warn them. And in the New International Version of the Bible, where, where the NLT here says repeatedly, it says again and again, and we could say again and again and again and again and again and again. And we see this throughout the Old Testament that God sent his prophets to warn them. He warned them. They exhorted them. They encouraged them. For he had compassion on his people and his temple. But the people mocked these messengers. They mocked these messengers of God and despised their words. They scoffed at the prophets until the Lord's anger could no longer be restrained and nothing could be done. So when you're reading the biblical text, it's always important to look at the buts. 
You've got you to take a look at the butts, okay? That's, can you guys remember that? So we see here that God warns again and again and again, and then what does it say? But. So we see that God has this initiative, that God has this plan, that God's actually inviting, continues to invite his people into his plan A, and then there's a big but. And there was always a big but in the way. There was this big but in the way, and the big but was that the Israelites just wanted to do it their own way. The Israelites wanted to be lord of their own lives. And so the people mocked these messengers of God, despised their word, they scoffed at the prophets until the Lord's anger could no longer be restrained and nothing could be done. And so here's the irony of the biblical story. That they needed God and didn't want him. And yet they had a God that wanted them and didn't need them. I mean, God is perfectly whole. He doesn't need us. He didn't create us because he needed us. He actually just created us because he wanted us, because he loves us. But he is our life source. And so it's the irony of the biblical story. We see this over and over again, that people needed God, but they chose not to want him. And God wanted them even though he didn't need them. And I think that's also the irony of our story. Every single one of us need God. We talked about this on Easter Sunday. That we need God. We were actually created to live in relationship with him. Our true life is found in him. Life apart from him is death. We need him, but yet we don't want him. But God wants you, and he wants me, and he wants to be in relationship with us, even though he doesn't have to or doesn't need to. And so we see this cycle of God initiating in these buts that happen, and Israel just denies God, avoids God, rebels against God, even though they need God. And so the nation kind of grows, and then the nation dwindles, and then the nation grows, and we see uh, God isn't going to give up on them, but he's not going to necessarily protect them from the consequences of their own decisions. Second Chronicles 36 uh, picking it up in verse 17, so the Lord brought the king of Babylon against them. The, Babylon, the Babylonians killed Judah's young men, even chasing them into the temple. They had no pity on the people, killing both young men and young women and the old and the infirm. God handed all of them over to Nebuchadnezzar. The king took home the Babylonian, uh, the, took home to Babylon the, all the articles, large and small, used in the temple of God and the treasures from both the Lord's temple and from the palace of the king and his official. This is a big deal because part of what uh, gave Israel their identity was their land, was their temple, was the idea that uh, God's presence was with, with them. We'll, we'll come back to that in a second. But I want to highlight this phrase that God handed all of them over. And we see this phrase actually throughout. Ah. Like I said, it's not my umbrella. Um, anyways, so imagine this umbrella is working. Uh, we see this phrase throughout Scripture, this idea that God handed them over. And in, in Romans 21, actually, it says that, it says, therefore God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts. And so God will protect you through his grace. 
<laughs> uh, through his grace. But if you consistently and repeatedly choose to step away from his covering, from his authority, from his lordship, from his direction, and you rebel, that eventually that God actually hands you over and gives you to the desires of your heart. And often we talk about God punishing people. Well, all God really needs to do to punish you is to remove his covering, his protection, his grace from your life, and you will experience the consequences of sin and death in your life. That you will experience the elements. All hail will break loose. Because we are constantly living under the protection and the grace of God. So even when Israel didn't know it, God was protecting them. God was covering them. God had a plan for them, and he's continually inviting them to plan A. Yet they continually rebel against God's plan. And over time, we see here that God just gives them over to the desires of their hearts. God allows them to experience the full consequences of their sin. All it takes for you and I to experience the consequences of our sin is for God to allow us to walk away from under the protective umbrella that he puts in our lives. Verse 19, this is, then his army burned the temple of God, tore down the walls of Jerusalem, burned all the palaces and completely destroyed everything of value. The few who survived were taken as exiles to Babylon. They became servants to the king and his sons until the kingdom of Persia came to power. So the message of the Lord spoken through Jeremiah was fulfilled. The land finally enjoyed the Sabbath, its Sabbath rest, lying desolate until the 70 years were fulfilled just as the prophet had said. Now I want to Zero in again, where it says these few were these few who survived. There, there's a word that occurs often in our Bibles, and it's this word remnant. That God kept a remnant. God kept a group of people. You know, the all Israel rebelled. The up the northern kingdom rebelled, the southern kingdom rebelled, and, and we know that ten of those tribes, their stories kind of ended because they felt the full consequences of their own decisions. And yet God kept a remnant because God doesn't give up on his promises. That God made a covenant with Abraham. We talked about in the first week. That God made a covenant with Abraham. And God doesn't give up on his covenants. God doesn't turn back on his promises. So even when we feel the full consequences of our sin, God still keeps a remnant. God still provides a way forward. God is yet unwilling to turn on his promises. I don't know, I don't know why, but when I was preparing this, I just saw this, this, uh, these flashbacks of me trying to uh, manage my own lawn. Every year about this time, I got people that come knock on my door, and they want to give me advice and have me pay money for them to make my lawn look really, really, really good. And I tell them I'm very happy with the way my lawn looks. Uh, and, and he's like, are you sure? And they, they always point to my grass and say, have you looked at your grass? Uh, and, I, and I try decently hard to keep a good lawn. And no matter what I do, there's like these dandelions that just, they just don't go away. Uh, and a couple of years ago, they were just like 
they were just crazy. They were everywhere. Um, and, uh, and as I was reading this and I read the word remnant, I just, I'm just having these pictures of these dandelions, you know, just a couple that sprout out in spring in my grass. And I have fear in my heart because I know that those dandelions are just going to spread if I can't take care of them, right? And it's kind of like God always keeps, he always keeps just a little bit there because, uh, because they just have to, he has the potential to explode something open, to fall through on his promises that, that, that he has not given up. He is persistent, and I know it's a negative example, but use it in a positive way. He's persistent like those dandelions in my grass. That God leaves a remnant. He doesn't turn his back on his promises. And I think that's, no matter your story, I don't know your story. Um, but I, I meet with enough human beings that I know how stories of human beings go. Uh, And my guess is that this is a word of encouragement that many of you need to hear. That regardless of what consequences of sin that you have experienced or felt in your life, maybe they were consequences of decisions that you made, and maybe they were consequences that other people made that had an impact on you, that God is a God that always keeps a remnant. That God is a God that always has an opportunity for you to move under the umbrella and that he can turn any situation to something beautiful. He's a God of redemption. And so regardless of the king after king after king, again and again and again and again of, uh, of the Israelites rebelling against God, God still doesn't give up on his people and he keeps a remnant and he invites them back under the umbrella of his protection to alignment with what he wants to do in the world and in their lives. Verse 22, in the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, the Lord fulfilled the prophecy he had given through Jeremiah. He stirred the heart of Cyrus to put this proclamation in writing and and to send it throughout his kingdom. This is what King Cyrus of Persia says, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of, of the earth. He has appointed me to build the temple of Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Any of you who are his people may go there for this task, And may the Lord, your God, be with you. So I want to make a couple of observations on this this point of the passage. If God can use a Persian king named Cyrus to build a temple to a God he doesn't even worship, he can use anyone to do anything. No matter what side of the political aisle you're on, and I hate to even say this, NDP or PC, um, that's all I'm going to say about those. But I, I, I've seen your arguments going on on Facebook. Uh, I follow you people. God is not bound by who is or isn't in power. This is good news. God can use the other side. You know, the wrong side? You know, the other side? He can use that side. He's not limited by them. And obviously, I, you know, I wish that God would put... Uh, People that love him in positions of influence, absolutely. And I think we're called uh, to be followers of Jesus in every sphere of society. But I'm just saying that God isn't hindered by whoever's in power. I don't think God gets nervous about the upcoming election or the results of the last election. There's this little phrase in this passage that's very powerful. In verse 22, which I highlighted earlier there. It says, 
that this happened in order to fulfill the word the Lord spoke by Jeremiah. Jeremiah 1.12 says that God is watching over his word to perform it. He doesn't forget his people. He doesn't forget his promises. Which brings me to another observation that God has a good memory. That God remembers well. There's a little phrase throughout the Old Testament that's repeated quite a few times and it, it just goes like this. Three words. For David's sake. In 853 BC, a king named Jehoram assumes the throne. He is the fifth king in the southern kingdom. He's been, uh, he's there 117 years since the death, after the death of David. It says that he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He actually killed his brother so that he could be the one to assume the throne. But then it is one of those places where uh, you think that those verses probably shouldn't go together. It doesn't make sense. It says that he did all these evil things. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. And then the next verse immediately says, Nevertheless, for David's sake, the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah. He is 117 years dead. And God says, I haven't forgotten David. For David's sake, I'm going to protect you. Can I suggest that God has done some things in your life for the sake of someone else? For the sake of somebody that interceded and prayed for you? I've become increasingly convicted of this as I've grown older. Uh, My great-grandma, who lived to be 113 and was the oldest lady in Canada for a while, um, she died a few years back, quite a few years back now, but I remember being in elementary school, and I... Uh, we were at a family gathering in Winkler, Manitoba, and I went to say hi to my grandma, and, uh, and so she had, like, she had lots of kids, who had lots of kids, lo- and so our, our family gatherings were, like, huge. You know, it felt like this room, uh, my family gathering. And so I go up to my grandma, and, uh, and she asked me some kind of question about, you know, what do I want to do when I get older? And being a being a good little suck-up who knew exactly what my great-grandma wanted to hear, I said, great-grandma, I want to be a man that grows up to serve the Lord. I had no interest in serving the Lord. I I just wanted to be a rock star. I wanted to be a... I don't know what I wanted to do. I I had no interest in doing what I'm doing. I, you know... But God knew what he was doing, and when those, when those lips came, when, when those words came out of my lips, it was like game over. I was like, I just, I just spoke that to a praying great grandma <laughs> who prayed for like all hundred plus of her descendants every single day of her life, by name, prayed for me by name, that Matt would be a man that grows up and serves the Lord. A couple of years ago, my grandpa passed away, um, and uh, in the last couple of times I went to visit my grandpa, you know, he, he, he couldn't even speak, uh, could rarely speak uh, at that point. He had a number of health uh, challenges, um, but there's two times that I went back home to visit before uh, he eventually passed away, and both of those times a similar experience happened. Uh, before I left, uh, he hadn't spoken 
he hadn't spoken a word since I was there uh, the whole weekend, uh, sitting in front of the TV watching his Toronto Blue Jays or Toronto Maple Leafs uh, without the sound on, uh, which is what he did his whole life. And he said, Grandpa, why don't you watch with the sound on? And he's like, I already know what's happening in the game. Why do I need somebody to tell me what's happening? Uh, <laughs> so last couple of visits, very little conversation, and he, and he would come... He came up to me both times with tears rolling down his cheeks and he pulled me in and he said, you know what? He said, your Graham and I pray for you every day. He said, we're so proud of you. And I wonder, I wonder how much of the blessing, the opportunities, um, the protection and the grace that I sense in my own life is because that God says, for the sake of Elizabeth, Bueller, who prayed for you every day, for the sake of John Dick, you know, I'm going to protect you. I'm going to bless you. And I wonder what it means for us to be that kind of people. I wonder if there's people in my life, in my kid's life, and when they have kids, in my church's life, you know, if God responds, you know, for the sake of Matt, am, 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 I, am I living in such a way, do, do I recognize that God is calling me to something so much greater than myself? Because it's humbling when you look back and recognize that you're standing on the shoulders of giants who are before you. There have been moments in my life when I've experienced blessings that I certainly don't deserve and things that have happened to me that there's no explanation for. And I often wonder in those moments if I'm experiencing the blessings of my great-grandma, of my grandma and grandpa. And my encouragement to you is let's be those kind of people. Let's recognize that we are beneficiaries of prayers that we know nothing about that people have prayed for us. We have inherited much that we didn't build and we have reaped much that we didn't sow. And God was working long before we ever walked this earth. And part of our lives is because he's honoring covenant and promises that he made years and years ago with other people. And we get to be the beneficiaries of that. God has a good memory. He doesn't forget his people. He hasn't forgotten you. How amazing is that? Let's be those kind of people. May we be awake to the reality that God is doing way more in our lives than just our lives, that we actually exist for what he's doing in history. And part of the benefit of doing the survey of biblical history like this, like we've done, we can actually see how God is honoring his word and his promises through thousands and thousands of years, a story which we get to be a part of. So this moment in Israel's history is a big deal. Like I mentioned, Israel's identity was put in, uh, they had the presence of God, the Ark of the Covenant, the the Holy of Holies. Uh, God was with them. And so that gave them identity. They had the Torah. They had the law that was given to them, God telling them how to live from God to them. God had promised them land, which signified they had power, that they had authority, that they were a nation, that they were something special. And so in this moment where they were taken captive, all of that was gone. 
And then so in Ezra and Nehemiah, and I'm going to do this very quickly, uh, it's one story, but you'll see what, if you understand that this was devastating for the Israelites, it makes sense then that you have these characters that show up in Ezra and Nehemiah, and they want to bring back and return to what God had done before. So in Ezra and Nehemiah, originally one book, the first character is Zerubbabel. Everybody say Zerubbabel. That's a fun one. Uh, so Zerubbabel senses that God is going to, uh, that God wants to rebuild the pe- temple, that he's calling him to rebuild the temple. And so uh, he does that. Uh, and so Zerubbabel goes, he rebuilds the temple because the Nebuchadnezzar died and then they had a new king that came in in Babylon and that king uh, gave them favor. And so because God gave them favor through that king, like we read about, they went back and so they rebuilt the temple. This is what happens. Then all the people gave a great shout, praising the Lord because the foundation of the Lord's temple had been laid. But many of the older priests, Levites, and other leaders who had, been, who had seen the first temple wept aloud when they saw the new temple's foundation. The others, however, were shouting for joy. The joyful shouting and weeping mingled together in a loud noise that could be heard far in the distance. It's an amazing passage. So those who had seen the previous temple were weeping. Those who didn't see the previous temple were shouting for joy. But those who had seen the previous temple knew that this temple was kind of a shadow of the previous temple. And in fact, in Leviticus 9, 1 Kings 8, uh, it talks about how God came uh, in a cloud and his presence took up the temple. It was this powerful moment. And you can almost imagine that Zerubbabel comes, they build this temple, and then they dedicate this temple. And you know what happens is God's presence actually doesn't show up and build the, and fill the temple. And so those thinking historically are weeping because they had this expectation that the future would be like the past, but it wasn't. And those who didn't really know the past, they're excited because it's something new. In the temple, you had the Holy of Holies, you had the courts, the temple, and then you had Jerusalem, you had Judea, and then you had the Gentile lands. This is, this is kind of the, the centric circles towards the Holy of Holies, which is in the middle of the temple where they thought that God's uh, Holy Spirit dwelt. And let me suggest that God always wanted the whole earth to be his Holy of Holies. God always wanted to take over the whole earth. And I think part of what's happening at this point of the story is that the Israelites want to go back to the way things were and they wanted to put God back in a box. We see in Revelation the new Jerusalem and it's the description of the whole earth being God's temple. And if you read the story, Zerubbabel is frustrated, and he tells people, you have no part in our temple, and he tells people to get out of the temple because they're not clean, and, uh, and he's going back to this mindset of this in-and-out mindset, that God had a special plan for the Jews, which he did, but they thought that made them special, but it just meant that God had kind of selected them for a greater mission beyond themselves, and they forgot that mission that was beyond themselves, and they wanted to create an inner circle again and put the Gentiles out, and so Zerubbabel sent people out And so this is a cool moment in Israel's history because they rebuild the temple, but it's an unfortunate moment because they don't recognize the thing that God's trying to do in them, which is to actually push them out into the world. 
We see, if we fast forward to the New Testament, we see that Jesus refers to himself as the temple. He dies on the cross, Good Friday, and the temple or the curtain of the temple to the Holy Holy is ripped in two and it signifies God's Holy Spirit going out into the world. And then we see in the New Testament that the believers who put their faith in Jesus are given the Holy Spirit and Paul refers to us as followers of Jesus as the temple of the Holy Spirit. God was wanting to bring the Holy of Holies through the whole earth and his plan was to use Jesus to do it But often we just want to build a temple and put God in a box. Paul encourages us, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. When we moved into this physical space, I don't want to get too much on a rant here, but we moved into this physical space um, a year ago. I showed this slide and I I encouraged us not to fall into the trap of thinking in a temple mindset that God was not calling us to just huddle that he gave us a, a missions post to go out from here because his spirit wants to go throughout the whole earth. This is the piece that Israel missed in this part of the story. They wanted to recreate the past instead of joining God into the future. So they built the temple. God wasn't in the temple. And that was disappointing for some. Haggai prophesies that the future this temple will be greater than the past glory. And what he's referring to is there's eventually, uh, 500 years later, Jesus is going to show up in this temple. Uh, and Jesus is the true temple. Ezra comes to build the law, or build the law, to remind people of the law. He's going to rebuild community and identity around the Torah. He wants to bring spiritual renewal to the Torah. But his mindset is to create separateness between them and the, the pagans again. So God is doing a new thing, but yet in Ezra and Nehemiah, we see that Zerubbabel misses it, Ezra kind of misses it because he thinks that it, it's righteousness for righteousness' sake. It's righteousness so that we can be separate and judge the other nations, but God always blesses to be a blessing. So Ezra calls people to repentance, and then he calls people that are married, that married other people from other nations, to divorce because they can't be married. And the law actually talks about how God hates divorce. And so Ezra's kind of missing it, that God actually has a holistic picture in mind. And then we get to Nehemiah, and Nehemiah wants to rebuild the wall, right? So these, to, to, to remind you that this was the identity that the, the Jewish people hung on to, that they had a temple, that God's presence was there, that they had a law, that they were special, that God told them how to live, and that they had a wall that was going to protect them because they had land, and they wanted to protect their land. They had power. And so Nehemiah feels this call to rebuild the wall. He was an Israelite official serving in a Persian government, and he gets permission to go and rebuild the wall. And then it gets to the point in the story where, this, where he rebuilds the wall, and then he tells others that weren't part of the Israelite tribe, that you have no part in Jerusalem. And again, he misses it. What was intended to be something protect the city becomes a barrier to keep others out. So that was a lot of info right there at the end. I tried to summarize a couple of books there. But I want to suggest something. Uh, I I think all of these parts of Israel's story point to something greater. 
that God created you to be a temple. To come under alignment, to come under the covering and the authority, the umbrella of God. And the invitation is when we do that, that God said he will put his spirit in us. That we were actually invited to be about bringing his presence, that authority, that grace throughout the earth. The Israelites couldn't see it because they didn't, they didn't understand the full gospel story like we do. That Jesus himself was the temple. He was the one that was torn in two. And he was the one that had the full presence of God, which he freely gives to those who come to him. So come under the umbrella. Come under the authority. Come under the grace of God. Receive the Holy Spirit. The law. Living in obedience is important, but obedience not so that we can stand above and point the finger at other people, but obedience so that our life might be a blessing to others. When you live in righteousness, it blesses your kids. When you live in righteousness, it blesses your neighbors. When my grandparents lived under the umbrella of God's grace, it had an impact on me generations later. It's not to be separate, but it's to bless. And then the wall. I think, you know, God wants to do something in our hearts. He wants us to live in alignment with him. He wants to fill us with his grace and his love and his joy through his spirit. But it's scary. And I think Nehemiah got scared and he didn't want other people inside his wall because he was afraid that history might repeat itself. My guess is that many of you have been hurt by others, by family, by friends, by the church. And I think we can relate to Nehemiah that we build a wall. And we think it's a good thing because we think we're protecting ourselves, we're protecting our hearts, we're, we're protecting, you know, whatever, but that wall is actually, we, the mistake we make is the same mistake Nehemiah made, is that we push other people out of the wall, and the same wall we put up to protect ourselves is the wall that we use as a barrier to actually love and reach other people. I'm going to invite you to stand with me. I think part of what it means to come under the authority and grace of God is actually to let down your wall, to let down your guard. Because Jesus is the fulfillment of the temple. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. Jesus is your protector. When we come under his covering, Jesus will do more with your life than you can do without him. Jesus will bless generations when we come under that. And I I wonder if there's some forgiving maybe in this place that needs to happen this morning because you've been hurt, but you've recognized you've put up a wall, you've been pushing others out, and God wants you to be on mission with him, with his spirit, but you can't do it because you've actually put up that wall, and God's inviting you to actually move out. That he never wanted to rebuild the temple, he never wanted to rebuild the wall, he never wanted to, to, to keep himself in a box, but he wants to go everywhere, and he wants to do it through you, uh, but there's some things in our lives that just stop us from joining him on that mission. I invite you to close your eyes and open your hands if you're willing. And I just pray 
that God would highlight for you what that is. Lord, there's some people here this morning that are have stepped outside of your umbrella, stepped outside of your covering, that they're continuing in rebellion. And they're starting to feel the consequences of those choices and you've called them back. Lord, I pray that your kindness, the idea that you want them, that you desire to live with them would lead them to repentance, to, would lead them to come back under that covering of grace. If you maybe sense the Lord inviting you to something of repentance this morning, I just invite you to put, a, put up a hand with your eyes closed. Just put up a hand and say, I need to return. Come under the grace and the authority of Jesus this morning. There's some of you, I think when we were talking about intercessors, that God is calling you to be about more than yourself. That there's neighbors that need your prayers. There's grandkids and kids that need your prayers. There's family members. There's church. uh, There's other brothers and sisters here in this church that need your prayers. And God is actually convicting you to say, I want you to stand in the gap. And I want you to be a blessing to others. Would you stand in the gap and be about something other than yourselves? If you feel like God's stirring that in your heart this morning, maybe put up a hand. Awesome. Fantastic. And maybe this morning you've actually realized that God wants to put his spirit in you to be a blessing to others. But you've actually built the temple. You've built the wall. You, you, you are afraid of being vulnerable because you've been hurt in the past. And God is telling you that he's got you, that he's got a plan, that he's going to protect you, and that his promises are true and that you can bank on them. And he's inviting you back to a place of vulnerability, back to a place of forgiveness. Is there somebody in your life, something that's happened in your life this morning that you recognize is actually hindering you from joining God and his spirit on mission. You sense maybe God inviting you to forgiveness this morning. Put up a hand if you feel like God wants me to forgive somebody, something this morning that's hurt me. If you put up a hand at all, I want all of you to put up a hand just to put put up your hand right now. Nice and high. Okay, now open your eyes, look around. Okay, if there's somebody with a hand up beside you, I want you to put your hand on them as I pray for them. Jesus, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your promises. We thank you for the song that we sang that all your promises in Jesus are yes and amen. We thank you that you have not given up on your promises regardless of how rebellious we've been in our lives. Lord, we thank you that you want to deposit your spirit into our hearts, that you want us to join you in what you're doing in our world. And Lord, there's things in our lives that actually have prevented us from doing that. And so Lord, whether it's sin or decisions we've made and we're living those consequences, Lord, we ask for your grace and your forgiveness to wash over this space this morning. These people that have raised their hands, Lord, would you pour out your grace on them? Lord, would you fill them with your Holy Spirit? Lord, for those who recognize that there's forgiveness that has actually made them put up walls in their heart that is hindering them from joining you, from partnering with you, Lord, I pray that you, 
who know exactly what it's like to forgive those enemies. We think of last Good Friday where he said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing, that you forgave those who killed you. Lord, would you give them the power and the courage to release that to you? Because they don't want to live in bondage anymore and they want to live the life that you created them to live. We pray all these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.